Take your Bible this morning and turn to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and we just finished up a study in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a historical book in the New Testament that tells about events that occurred in the early church. And we could say that 1 and 2 Samuel are comparable to the book of Acts in the New Testament. 1 and 2 Samuel are historical books that tell about events that occurred in the early years of Israel as a nation. If you'll remember when they came out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt, then they uh, came into the promised land and they were led by judges. God would raise up a man. He was not a king. He was more of a spiritual leader. And the Bible calls, called them judges. And they would judge the people of Israel. They would lead the people of Israel. And then they became restless. You know the story, most of you. And they began to say, we want a king. Samuel was the prophet and the judge at that time. And they told Samuel, pray to God that he would give us a king. And so the Lord said, you don't need a king. Let me be your king. But they said, no, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations that we have seen. So God... We have a good example. You talk about the will of God. That is a perfect example of what we might call the permissive will of God. That wasn't God's perfect will for the people of Israel to have a king. He didn't want them to have a king, but they insisted. We want a king. So God says, okay, I will allow you to have a king. That said, I will permit that. I'll allow you to have a king. And so God then sent Samuel out to choose a king. And we all know that the king that he chose was Saul. And I want us to go back... Uh, this morning, and we're going to start a series some 10 years ago, back in 2009, if you were here, uh, we preached on the life of King David. And I want us to go back and we're going to revisit the life of King David in the Old Testament. I read a couple of articles in uh, Billy Graham, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's monthly magazine, Decision. If you don't get it, you can look it up online on their website. And they noted, they noted in there that although the Old Testament makes up 70% of the Bible in a survey they recently did, only 20% of sermons are from the Old Testament. And I think, and I've mentioned this briefly before, some would say that maybe the Old Testament is outdated, but let's just remember a couple of things about the Old Testament before we jump into this study in the Old Testament. And first of all, Jesus believed in the Old Testament. When Jesus quoted Scripture, He quoted from the Old Testament. When He referenced the Word of God, He was speaking about the Old Testament. If you remember when uh, He was walking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road and they didn't recognize who He was, and He began to share with them, the Bible says, out of the Scripture, the things that pertain to Him. And so it wasn't until the, old, the apostles in the New Testament understood the Old Testament that they truly believed who Jesus was. And then a third point that we could make, when the apostles and prophets, they, they were of course the first preachers to fulfill the great commission to go into all, world, all the world and preach the gospel, all, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. When they spoke about the Word of God, they were referring to the Old Testament. And, of course, when you read what these apostles and prophets wrote in the New Testament, they often referred to Scripture. 
couple of examples that I know all of you know. In Romans 15, 4, uh, Paul said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, the stories and all the things in the Old Testament. They're written for our learning so that we can learn something and that we might have comfort. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, For the Word of God... And what, what was he talking about when he wrote that? If you could go back, you know, we talk about in the Constitution, original intent. What was the original intent of the people who wrote the Constitution? If you could go back to the original intent of the guy who penned Hebrews chapter 4, he was talking about the Old Testament when he wrote this. Now, we accept the New Testament, obviously, as the Word of God because it tells us about Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, but when he wrote this word, he was talking about the Old Testament. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And lastly, when Paul, remember we talked about Paul writing 2 Timothy. Paul was in his second imprisonment in Rome. He was going, he believed, very shortly to be executed, which he was. And he was writing his last will and testament, we might as well say. And he, he penned these words to young Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we're going to jump into that part of the Scripture that the, old, that the apostles and the prophets referred to as Scripture, and that is the Old Testament. And we're going to take... And revisit if Paul in the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament, other than of course Jesus who is the focus of both Testaments, Jesus is the focus of the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we understand them both properly, Jesus is the focus of all of it. But when we talk about a human person, an apostle or a prophet or a servant of God, if Paul might be called the centerpiece of the book of Acts and the early church, then we could say that David was the centerpiece of much of the Old Testament, certainly of the, of the life of the people of Israel. And so I think we can learn a lot by going back and taking a few Sundays and looking again at the life of David. I think that all of us, if we'll look at David as we go through this, we can see some of ourselves in David. I mean, David can rise to, to heights of, of great spiritual greatness. He can be... Uh, self-denying. Uh, he can deny himself and, and do such wonderful things. But yet that same person, that same David, who, do, who does all those wonderful things, we see that he can also stoop to the lowest and can disappoint everyone around him and disappoint us as we read about him and certainly disappoint God who chose him. And so when we see David, I think we will have an opportunity not to see some polished up figure who did no wrong, but we see a true flesh and blood person who wanted to serve God, who did indeed serve God, but also in many ways he disappointed God and he failed God. And, and we'll get to walk and hopefully revisit some of those. And I know many of you are familiar with David, but I, I, I pray that God will speak to you as we go through there. But before we begin to speak about David, we first have to look at a man that was um, the very first king of Israel. We all know his name, right? His name was... Saul, old King Saul, 
who was the very first king of Israel. And I thought of several different titles that we could perhaps, when we talk about Saul, what we could, could title the message. But uh, perhaps the best title I could come up with is simply The Fool. The Fool. Because if there ever was a person who should have been a success, it was Saul. If there ever was a person who had everything going for him, it was Saul. Don't you know people who have everything going for them in the world? I mean, you look at them, they're intelligent, they're attractive, uh, they've got support, family support. I mean, you look at them and you think, man, this person has everything in the world going for them. I mean, if anybody could ever excel, it should be this person. And we find sometimes they don't. And then we see someone else who seems like we think, my goodness, they have no family support. I mean, you know, they say beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes all the way to the bone and they're eat up with ugly all over. I mean, they don't have anything going for them at all. Lord, I shouldn't have said that. I'll go ahead and apologize. That, I, that wasn't from the Lord, I'll say. That was William. Okay. But, you know, they don't have anything going for them. And yet that person manages to succeed. That person manages to go out and overcome all those obstacles that are against them. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a fool. And I say that respectfully to good old King Saul, but he actually calls himself a fool. So I'm just going to repeat what he said. And so we're going to look at him, and I hope, remember, Romans tells us, the verse I read just a moment ago, that all of these things that were written were written for our instruction. I would rather read about a fool than be a fool, wouldn't you? I'd rather learn about a fool than be a fool. So I hope if we will learn about what, what made Saul a fool. Why does he refer to himself as a fool? If we can visit that today, hopefully... It will affect you and it will affect me and we can avoid being the fool that Saul himself says that he was. Well, first of all, let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and we'll look there at verse number 1. And let's first of all look at everything that Saul had going for him. Look there first of all about his family. Chapter 9 verse 1, just to give you some background. Israel has demanded a king... And the Lord has come to Samuel, who was the prophet, and said, Okay, Samuel, I'm going to give Israel a king. And I'm, going to, I'm going to show you who the man is that I have chosen to be the king. So first of all, it says there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zoar, the son of Bacharath, the son of Apia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, there's a wonderful picture. I mean, there's straight out of central casting. If you want a hero uh, for uh, any story, here he is. Here is Saul. First of all, his father, his family. The Bible says that he was a man, a mighty man of power. Some translations, if you have a more modern translation, it may translate that word power, wealth. He was a mighty man of wealth. So that tells us that Saul's family was influential. Saul's family was wealthy and powerful and had influence. That never hurts. That never hurts. So first of all, his family was influential. Notice there, secondly, 
about him. It said that he had a choice. Another way to translate that would be healthy. A choice or a healthy. Uh, here was a perfect specimen of a man, was Saul. He had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. Now, he's already said he's handsome, but he goes a little further. He says, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, he's, we've all heard the expression, tall, dark, and handsome. Now, I can't tell you anything about his complexion, but he was tall and handsome. We know that. He was healthy. He was handsome. And remember, this was in the day when uh, armies fought face to face and, and, and sword to sword and shield to shield. You know, nowadays, it uh, doesn't matter what your physical size is. You can press a button as good as anybody, right? You know, and if you're fighting in a war, you can press a button or electronic or pull a trigger. But back in those days, physical size was very important because you had to fight your enemy face to face, hand to hand. And here was Saul, who was the tallest and the largest man, the Bible says, in all the kingdom of Israel. And not only was he tall, but he was handsome. So he's got a wealthy family. He is a man who's healthy and, and handsome. And all the attributes that that culture looked to uh, to mean that you were someone important. And now notice he's got all this. Well, he maybe he was a, a you know kind of a stuck-up guy. You know, you've always met folks that you know there there's women that are pretty and they know it, and and men that are handsome and they know it, and it's it's gone to their head. But that wasn't Saul. We find that Saul was a very modest person. If you look in First Samuel chapter nine, verse twenty-one. They're trying to find Saul, and uh, they want to locate him. And uh, Samuel comes to Saul, and, and he begins to speak with him, and he begins to tell him that God is going to choose him. And he says, and Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Saul says, I, I, I'm not anybody. You, you must have the wrong guy. I'm, my family is, is small, and I'm small, and, and I'm, I'm just not important. Now, I would tell you he was being modest. We already know from what the Bible tells us in the first part of chapter 9 that his family was indeed a very wealthy and influential family. So you know how some folks can you know, be a little modest and say, well, you know, I, I, I know, you know I, I'm not, you know, here they are, they're the valedictorian of the class. And you say, boy, you sure are smart. Well, no, not really. I'm, I'm not really that smart. Well, yeah, you are. And I think Saul, a little bit, he's being sincere, but he's, he's basically saying, listen, I'm, I'm not that important. It can't be me. My family's not important. I'm not that important. Well, there's another instance. If you go over to chapter 10, look in chapter 10 and verse number 20. It says uh, they have proclaimed or going to proclaim uh, Saul to be king, and he brings all the people before him. This is a public event now. And chapter uh, 10, verse 20, it says, When Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. And they inquired of the Lord further and says, Has the man come here? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. And they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller 
than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is not one like him among all the people? And all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Here's Saul on the day that he's going to be publicly proclaimed as king and and they're kind of having like casting of the lots to see publicly who it is and it falls on the tribe of Benjamin, then it falls on Saul's family, and then it falls on Saul and they look around, they call out his name and he's nowhere to be found. And they begin, Samuel seeks the Lord and says, where is Saul? And he says, look over behind the equipment and there Saul was hiding. Here's this great big old hulking man This great big figure of a man, Saul, and he's hiding behind the equipment. He doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't want to be out in front, but yet he is chosen and put out in front. So we see that Saul was not a man who was proud, but he was a modest man. Well, notice not only that, but if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27, another positive part of his character was that Saul could be very merciful. Look there in chapter 10, verse 27. There the Bible says when he was announced to be king, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So they announced that Saul is going to be the king, and some people said, long live the king, but, you know, there's always dissenters. You know, I mean, my goodness. You and your wife or your husband can't even agree on what temperature the house should be, right? You know, you're always going behind one another, changing the degree. Well, you get folks together, that here they are, and, and most of the folks said, long live the king, boy, this is going to be great. But some other folks got over in the corner and said, we don't like this Saul. He, he, he can't do anything. And they brought him no presents. They didn't honor him, and they spoke against the new king. They said, we, we don't like this new king. We don't think he's any good. Well, what did Saul do? The Bible says he just held his peace. Well, maybe he's thinking, well, just wait till I take charge. Then then I'll take care of these guys. Well, what happened? If you look over, he did take charge. And you go over and you look in 1 Samuel chapter 11. They have a battle, the first great test of of Saul. and, And he defeats an enemy and gains a victory. And then they over in verse 12, after the victory's been gained and Saul has won, his, he's passed his first great test as king, he's defeated the enemy of Israel, the Ammonites. And there in verse number uh, 14, or verse number 12, then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. They said, Okay. Who was it that said Saul wasn't going to be a good good king? Who was that speaking against our new king? He's just defeated the enemy. Bring those people here. We'll, We'll silence them. We'll put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Well, boy, Saul is, he is really stepping up and filling his place as the king. It seems like, you know, God made a great choice. Samuel has chosen the right man. He looks the part of the king. He steps in and as he becomes king, the first thing he does, he defeats the enemies of Israel and he shows mercy. Every leader should have the ability to allow people to make a mistake and, and embrace them back into the fold. And that's exactly what Saul did. He extended mercy to these people who were at first negative toward him. Well... What about the spiritual side of Paul? We are, uh, good gracious. 
it's going to take a little bit to transition from Acts back to Samuel. The spirit, some of y'all didn't catch it. You were asleep too, wasn't you? I said the spiritual side of Paul. I mean the spiritual side of Saul. We have saw his physical side that he certainly met the part or fit the part uh, in his appearance. But what about his spiritual side? If you look there in 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So the first thing we see is that Saul is anointed. He's anointed and consecrated by Samuel as the chosen one of God. Well, notice verse 6. It says Samuel is speaking to Saul and he's telling him what is going to happen. He says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. He tells Saul, Something's going to happen to you, Saul. You're going to see the prophets of God come through. They're going to prophesy. And when they begin to prophesy, you're going to prophesy. And you're going to be turned into another man. You might say there's his conversion. He becomes a new person. God's Spirit comes upon him. And he becomes a new person. Well, notice there in verse number 9, the fulfillment of that. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? Kind of a little proverb. Here was this Saul, this modest young man, and all of a sudden he's prophesying like the prophets. And they say, Is Saul also a prophet? So God touched his heart. Not only was he a man who met the criteria to be a king outwardly, but the Bible tells us that God changed him inwardly. He was touched by the Spirit of God. Now, let me just take a brief moment and tell you a little difference between the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the working of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, over and over again, you will see instances where the Spirit of God comes upon someone like it did Saul. The Spirit of God falls upon a person and they prophesy. Remember Samson? The Spirit of God would fall upon Samson and, uh, and he would have great strength, great physical strength, and he would perform uh, acts of strength. And so the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would fall upon people. But in the New Testament, there's the promise in the Old Testament, the time's coming, the Lord said, when I will pour out my Spirit upon your sons and your daughters, and they will prophesy and see visions. What happens in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, and to all of us who name the name of Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't fall upon us. He baptizes us and dwells within us. That's the difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the New Covenant... You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't fall upon you. He lives within you. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So certainly the Holy Spirit can, can work a special event in your life. I'm not saying that, absolutely. But I'm saying the way He works in the New Testament, He lives within us. 
He doesn't fall upon us and then leave. He lives within us continuously. So that's what happened to Saul. Saul had a spiritual awakening. Well, everybody's got to have good people to follow him. You know, a leader is nothing without the people who follow him. What kind of people did Saul have to follow him? Look in 1 Samuel 10, verse number 26. It mentions the men that followed him. These were his, you know, those who were like the palace guard, the men who were very close to him. It says, And Saul also went home to Gilbah, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. So Saul had, not only was he a brave man himself, his heart had been touched by God, but we see that the men that surrounded King Saul, the Bible says they were valiant men, that means brave, courageous men, faithful men you could depend upon, but also it says something about their spiritual condition, whose men God's heart had touched. So not only were Saul's men brave and faithful, but we could say they were men of faith. So he had good men around him. Not only was he a great king, but he had great men around him. Well, if he had men around him to follow him, even a king needs somebody to advise him. Even a king needs somebody to go to for advice and say, what do you think about this? Give me some advice. A wise king, the Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, their safety. Well, who was the advisor, the mentor, if you will, of good King Saul. You know him, don't you? We've already met him. We've talked about him. I've called his name several times. The prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel. A good example of that, if you go, uh, if you go there in chapter 9, verse number 27, when he's talking to Saul, Samuel says, as they were coming down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. And Samuel says, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the Word of God. So if there's ever been anyone set up for success, I would present to you it was good King Saul. From his physical appearance, to the way God touched his heart, to the people around him, the men that followed him, and his mentor, if you will, his advisor, the great prophet Samuel, we see that Saul had a capacity for mercy to those that opposed him. So Saul is doing everything right. Saul is a person who has great ability. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, when he is, uh, when he is crowned king, his great ability meets great opportunity. Because we see in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, the Bible says... So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now all of this is happening around 1052 B.C. Because if you study a little bit of history, Saul reigned as the king of Israel from 1052 B.C. to 1011 B.C. So about a thousand years before Christ is when all of this is occurring. So Saul is the king. He's set up for success. God has given him everything he needs to be a success. But why then did I refer to him as the fool? The greatest fool. Why did I refer to Saul that way? Well, let's find out. Where did he start going wrong? Well, look there in chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 5. First of all, go back to chapter 10, verse 8. Let me just read a little passage there. 
Samuel gives Saul some instruction. He says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal. Surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now, to whom does Saul owe the fact that he is king? He's just living in the backwoods, hiding among the equipment. It was Samuel. Samuel went and told him, God has anointed you king. Listen to me. I will guide you. I will tell you. So Saul becomes king under Samuel's guidance. And he tells Saul, he says, Now you go down to Gilgal. You wait seven days. Don't do anything. When I come after seven days, we'll, we'll sacrifice to the Lord, and then I will give you instructions on what to do. Don't do anything till I get there. Well, in the meantime, he's crowned king. No doubt everybody's walking by, bowing the knee. And You know, when folks, remember what we said about Paul when he was on Malta? Don't let the criticism of others destroy you, but also don't let the praise of others deceive you. And I wonder if everybody that met Saul wasn't bowing the knee. Oh, you know, Saul, he defeated the enemy. He's doing great. He's doing wonderful things. And maybe a little bit, a little bit of that's going to Saul's head. He begins, you know, I, hey, I, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty smart guy. I mean, I'm, God has anointed me. I, I'm the king. I'm chosen specially by God. And, and maybe Saul begins to feel that crown on his head just a little bit too heavy. And we find over in 1 Samuel chapter 13, in verse number 5, he's waiting there at Gilgal. He, he's, he's waiting for Samuel to come. And, and the Bible says there in verse... Uh, actually, if you, go down, if you go down there to verse uh, number 8, the Philistines are gathering together, so he's getting nervous. You know, Saul hadn't mentioned anything about, I mean, Samuel hadn't mentioned anything about the Philistines coming, and the enemy's coming, and Saul's beginning to get nervous. And so the Bible says there in verse number 8, Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so Saul said, Bring me a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me now. And he offered the burnt offerings. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. You remember we preached on how to sink his ship? What was the first thing on how to sink his ship when they were getting ready to leave in haste? Remember, they were compelled. They said, we're under pressure. We've got to move. We're going to lose money and, and time's getting away from us. And, and they got under pressure and they said, we're going to set sail. And Paul says, don't set sail. Don't do it. They said, well, we have to. We have to. We, we don't have time. And here, Saul, he says, I... I'm under pressure. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The first path or the first step, if you will, that, that, that Saul took on the road to destruction was a, was a route 
of self-determination. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what Samuel said, but times have changed. The circumstances are cha- have changed. Uh, Samuel didn't know the Philistines were going to be coming. And, and Samuel is late. He hasn't shown up like I understood he would. And, and I've got to do what I've got to do. That was Saul's first mistake. So, well, that just seems so minor. Remember, why is this written? Why, why does Romans say this is written that we might learn? Well, I tell you the lesson I learned from that is when I read in the Word of God, it commands me and it tells me what I should do. And then rather, as we spoke last Sunday night, rather than the Word of God judging me, I begin to judge the Word of God. And I begin to say, well, now, wait a minute. Yeah, but, but times have changed. It's not like it was back then. I mean, it's a long, it's a long time. It's 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth. And, and I know that's what the Bible says, but I've, I've got to do things a little differently. That was Saul's first mistake. He knew better than what the Word of God, given by Samuel, the prophet of God, had been shared with him. Circumstances had changed in Saul's mind, and he knew better. So he ignored what Samuel had told him, and he went his own way. That was Saul's first mistake. Down the path to becoming a fool was he decided that he knew better than the Word of God. Just, again, one more time. A good test for you and I to find out where our heart is. When you read the Bible, do you let the Bible judge you? Or do you sit back in your mind and are you judging the Bible? Are you determining, well, I, I just don't know if I believe that or not. I just don't know if that applies to me or not. That's what, that was Saul's mistake. Saul decided he would judge what Samuel had said, not let what Samuel had said judge him. He would be the judge. That was Saul's first mistake. Well, it got worse. We go down to a couple of chapters over, 1 Samuel 15 and... And Samuel gives Saul another command from the Lord. The Amalekites had attacked the people of Israel when they were defenseless, when they were coming through on their way from Egypt as slaves to the promised land. And you go back and read Exodus as they're going through there. There is a prophecy that God gives that the Amalekites will be destroyed. That God will remember what they did to His people. They did not not treat them kindly, but they attacked them and were very cruel to them. And God says, you will be destroyed. So here, Saul, as the king of Israel, God gives him the command to attack the Amalekites and completely destroy that civilization. There will be none left from the king to the lowest person in the kingdom. He even tells Saul, do not take any spoil. Don't take any animals. Don't take any goats. Don't take any money. Don't take any clothes. Everything is to be burnt and totally destroyed. Well, Saul goes out. And he almost keeps everything that the Lord told him. But uh, you'll find there in verse number 8 of chapter 15, says he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, Samuel, Saul went from kind of twisting what Samuel had told him and said, yeah, but things have changed. 
uh, he's a little late and he didn't know the Philistines were coming, so I'm going to have to go ahead and, and do the offering rather than wait on Samuel. He went from that to, in this case, blatantly disobeying what God had said. And, and that's, that's a slippery slope. We, we go from kind of twisting what God had said to make it fit our situation, and then we go to where Saul is, in this case, now he's totally blatantly disobeying what God said. And Samuel shows up. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. See, Saul had a friend in Samuel. Samuel was interceding for Saul. He's saying, God, please, you know, he's your king, please have mercy. And it says, when Samuel rose to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel and indeed set up a monument for himself. Boy, Saul's really went down the road a long way. This man that was hiding behind the equipment and didn't want to be noticed when he was first ordained king, now after he's won a couple of battles and things are going well, he sets up a monument to himself. And so he's really going down the wrong path. And the Bible says, Verse 13, Then Samuel went to Saul and said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now he's gone to line. But Samuel said, What then? You know, one of the classic passages in Scripture where Saul says, I have obeyed the Lord. And there's sheep bleating. And, and donkeys braying. And God had said, destroy everything the Amalekites have. And Samuel says, well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak on and and Samuel begins to give him a prophecy of the Lord. And in the interest of time, we go down to verse 22 where Samuel summarizes. And he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So here we see that Saul has disobeyed God. And, and listen, here's one of the reasons the Old Testament is important. The grace that the New Testament teaches us about is of, no, is of no value if we don't understand the law that operated without grace in the Old Testament. You see, the law of God is, is set. And the law of God cannot be changed. And in the Old Testament, you know, some people read it and say, boy, that's real harsh. It, because it is the law of God and we don't meet the law. And that is why the grace of God is so wonderful. An old preacher uh, one time was talking to a young preacher. He said, well, how can I get folks saved? He said, well, the first thing you got to do is get them lost. You're not going to get saved till you get them lost. They need to understand that they are facing the judgment of God. They need to understand that they have sinned. They have rejected God, and God is going to judge them for their sin. Without that, salvation is worthless. Salvation is meaningless if there is no judgment to avoid. 
If there is no sin or no law of God that we transgress, then salvation means nothing. The cross is meaningless. That song we sang about the blood earlier is a worthless song. If there's no such thing as the law of God and sin that violates the law of God and the judgment that follows that disobedience to the law of God. That's one of the things the Old Testament teaches. Here Saul has disobeyed God. And here Samuel is saying, you have rejected God and God has rejected you. Well, what happens? In 1 Samuel 16, spiritual deadness. You know the story. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, very quickly just to... To finish up here, the Bible says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Spiritual deadness. Well, you turn over to 1 Samuel 28. You see how Saul goes in a progression? He went in a progression from simply twisting the Word of God to disobeying the Word of God. Now he's spiritually dead. The Spirit of God has left him. And what does he do? He used to go to Samuel, but Samuel has died in the meantime. And who does he go to? 1 Samuel 28. You remember it? 1 Samuel 28. He goes to a woman that we call the witch of Endor. She's a median. She's a, a woman who seeks to speak with the dead. And 1 Samuel 28, verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant says, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. And of course, she says, I can't because the king says he'll kill anybody. He said, well, I, I, I promise nothing will happen to you. And a long story we don't have time to go into. But the fact is, he went from spiritually dead. Now he's consulting a witch. Now he's consulting a medium to speak with the dead. and He wants to talk to Samuel. He's trying to find a word from Samuel. And then we go to the end of Saul in 1 Samuel 31. Remember the man that had everything, Saul? He was, everything was going for him, both physically and spiritually. And then he was given that position of king and slowly... After he received that position, he first started twisting the Word of God to make it fit his situation. Then he began to totally disobey the Word of God and ignore the Word of God. Then the Spirit of God abandoned him and he, had, he was spiritually dead. And then he became spiritually deprived, depraved, if you will, where he started seeking guidance from a witch. And now the wages of sin is death, which is a spiritual reality, but we see it in a physical manifestation in the Old Testament. What happens to Saul is his death. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse number 1, And the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishia, Saul's sons, and the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men, remember those faithful men that were following Saul? All his men died together that same day.
And here's the verse I'm going to close with. In 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, Saul himself speaking when David had come uh, out of the cave and, and convicted Saul of the way he was acting. He says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Saul says, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. I've shared with you the life of a fool, a man that God gave so much and he threw it all away. I pray that I will not be that fool. I have the capability of being that fool. I pray you will not be that fool. You have the capability of being that fool. But I pray that we will serve God faithfully, use the gifts that He's given us to honor Him and not ignore His commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the, the story of Saul, who was greatly gifted, but yet, God, he abandoned those gifts and he chose the path of pride and disobedience. And I pray, God, you will convict us that we might not cast aside your word, but that we would follow the teaching of your word and not walk in our own way and in our own understanding. There's one here that does not know Jesus as Lord. I pray that you would draw them to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing, you're here this morning. Maybe God is speaking to your heart. If you want to come pray, or I'll be glad to pray with you as we stand and sing.